from the campus of Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. You're listening to the G Suite Podcast, where we discuss all things Zag business. Episode 5. Kevin McQuilkin is the first executive in residence at Gonzaga School of Business Administration, and he teaches a course in mergers and acquisitions. Professor McQuilkin spent a career in investment banking in New York City with Wells Fargo and Deutsche Bank. When not on campus, he's found tending to alpacas at the Abbey Normal Farm run by his wife. He discusses his efforts to open up new career avenues for Zags. What, what brought you to Gonzaga? Tell me about your Gonzaga experience and then your career, kind of continuing through your career. Uh, so I was, uh, I did a number of things in high school, but uh, was a baseball player. Um, some people would say I was a very good baseball player. I was pretty good. Yeah. And we had a very great, we had an awesome program. About nine guys on that pro in that program went to college and either were recruited or played um, the high school team. We had a very good coach who uh, was a Zag. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and he told me that it would be a great place for me and I believed him. So that's where I got. First time I saw Gonzaga was when my parents dropped me off. Shut the front door. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we didn't have, you know, Al Gore had not invented the internet yet. So, <laughs> it's tough, huh? so that didn't exist. Um, yeah. Um, I communicated with a coach, um, invited me to come on out. And by the time got to Gonzaga, I'd been playing so much I couldn't throw, my shoulder was shot. Um, and by the time spring came around, I had figured out one, um, I'm not going to make a living playing baseball. Uh, and two, probably more importantly, there's a hell of a lot more going on in college than playing baseball. That's for sure. So I didn't play anymore. We did have uh, four years in a row. We had the championship soft, intramural softball team. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Never, never lost a game in four years. Wow. Wow. Smaller student body back then, though, so maybe the company. Yeah. yeah. And Ken Anderson can tell you about an epic game <clears throat> that took place in probably 1980. Um, his team of freshmen, all of us, played a team of some basketball players, the guy that ran Sodexo, and these guys were studs. And we beat them, barely. Barely, man. You got the you got the W though. That's all that matters. We barely beat it. We didn't deserve it. I mean, if we played four or seven, they would have won in six games. Sure, well, sure. Maybe five, maybe five games for that matter. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all you need. That's all you need, man. Um, wow. Uh, you know, side note: Hills Resort in the winter. I think it's on New Year's Day as a snowshoe softball tournament. If you're wanting to teach <laughs> Uh, that's different <laughs> like the undertaking so wow now and did you go to Bellevue High School went to Newport High School Newport High School okay and then well who was the coach was it was it the Fox the coach at uh his name, he's name's Bob Albo oh, <laughs> I think he's still alive he had in his time as a coach at Newport he probably had 10 players that's at least sniffed the major leagues. I mean, the, my junior year, we had um, three pitchers, all of two of whom played in the majors. 
one of whom was a played at Washington State. Well, wow. we were good. We were really good. And you, you guys went state, or you could close to yeah. It? We won state. We won the state tournament. Um, guy from Spokane named Ryan Sandberg. Yeah. Um, we beat his team. Our pitcher struck him out three times. Yeah, that's yeah. North Central. It's where he was. It's yeah. like Ryan Sandberg Field now. So that was the uh, that was the state final, and I, I think I was a junior. Wow! Wow! That's incredible. Okay, so you're at Gonzaga. Uh, and now you know. Now you're, you're you're cut loose in the world. You have no you have no athletic obligations. What's what's happening? What's um? Well, we were. This is back in the day when there was an organization called the Knights, yeah. service organization that was banished a, a few years ago, yeah. um, for behaving badly. Um, at that time, we didn't behave badly. We had fun. We did a lot of good work, an awful lot of good work. Uh, as all sophomores, I was the president of that organization for a year. Um, I was a RA as a junior in Cushing Hall. Okay. And as a senior, I was the RD in Cushing and another dorm at the time, another small one. Um, and back in those days, you know, I got free room and board as a senior. Um, and that went a long way. I mean, the, the ratio between tuition and room and board was not nearly as different as it is today. Yeah. That was a huge percentage of the cost of going to school. Wow. You got a bigger room, too, didn't you get like the corner suite? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. But yeah. You, had, you had to actually do a little bit of stuff. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not a lot. Yeah. Well, you, I guess you. <laughs> You forfeit some weekend nights, but as long as you have your your park-in sandwich delivered to you or whoever made the run. That's right. It was, um, but it was a way to pay for going to school. I had some scholarships and had all that, but um, borrowed money. Uh, just got to get through it. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you there. Uh, I, was, I was an accounting major um, and also majored in finance. This is back before somebody invented concentrations versus majors which i still don't understand i'm not sure what that means either but yeah I mean, when i mean when somebody says well what's a concentration say it's like a major then why don't you just call it a major <laughs> that would be very simple but um so i had finance and accounting and i also i was in the honors program and that required me to take a lot more um and higher level core classes than the typical student curriculum <clears throat> and along the way i decided the philosophy classes were pretty interesting in particular one professor so i took a number of courses from uh, father jerry coles who's uh, passed away since then um i actually think he left the jesuits before that and then he passed away he was a very close friend with steve cooter okay um and uh, so I ended up with a minor in philosophy. Great. And I, to this day, I'm telling students, do not ignore that big building over there because there's a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the difference maker for our business school graduates. I get a lot of feedback of, you know, your, your graduates are differentiated because they can think, speak, write, present. Yep. Um, so and what they don't do well enough, I think, is sell that. They have to sell it. Right. 
it is a differentiator. But if you don't bring it up, people don't necessarily come to that conclusion themselves. Um, and I tell them that all the time. Do not underestimate it. For I mean, for how many years I've been talking to a lot of students, um, and many times they'll say of the courses you took in school, which ones had the most impact on your career and your success. <clears throat> and they all think I'm going to say accounting, or they all think I'm going to say finance, and I always say philosophy. Always. The other stuff, candidly, if you have a, a reasonable degree of intellectual horsepower, I can teach you that stuff pretty easily. Right. Right. But writing, speaking, critical thinking, that's hard to get to. Yeah. And it seems harder as, as uh, these days, maybe. But um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. So, so, so you graduate Gonzaga. And yep. then you, you stayed you stayed here in the big time in Spokane, right? Was that I, first I um well I wanted to I wanted to be a banker. Um at least I thought I did. Um I didn't really know what that was because I hadn't done it before. Um and the highway from Spokane to New York City was full of potholes and traffic stops. <laughs> so it didn't work. Um, the other pathway to grad school, to Wall Street was grad school. And the grad schools that I wanted to go to um, all required you to work for a couple of years. That's what they're, and they still do for lots of very good reasons, most of which is, at least my experience was, and I think it still is the case, that in the schools like the Harvards and the Whartons and Northwestern Chicago, the professors there really aren't lecturing and just teaching you, talking at you. They're facilitating a discussion. And so you, the class will have a business case and the discussion is coming at it. And the professor's job is to orchestrate, really seek the opinions of people. And if you had a class full of, you know, people with two years experience in accounting, uh, two or three years as an engineer at Boeing, two or three years selling soap at Procter & Gamble, somebody who worked as a consultant or a young banker, um, everybody's coming at it with a different experience set and perspective, and that creates problem solutions. If everybody there was a brand new graduate from an undergrad college of any sort, they really don't have different perspectives. Right. And that's, that it was, and I believe still is the thesis behind the certain schools really, really pushing for experience before coming to grad school. So that's where I was, what I attempted to do. I took the GMAT as a senior, um, <laughs> took it the day after finals and was massively hungover. <laughs> but I had a good enough score then I applied to schools and I got in to most of the ones I chose to apply to and every one of them said you're not in the class of 83 you're in the class starting in 85 go get a job get some experience and we'll hold you a spot That's so awesome. awesome. know there's a light at the end of the tunnel thing. yeah and that was a great going downtown to work for the old national bank which is part of u.s bank now um 
it gave me the ability to be a little more aggressive, a little more risk-taking in, you know, decisions around the workplace. If, you know, not crazy risk, but things you might not do, decisions you might not make if you were planning to be there for your career or for 10 or 15 years. I knew I was leaving. So why not be a little more aggressive in taking positions? And, and it worked great. I got some really good training. Um, at one point, they gave me a phone and said, here, go race, go make some new business, go create some new business. And I was out there dialing for dollars. And it was, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. But it was a great experience. And that, that experience, that singular story helped me get my first internship in banking because I could talk about, you know, I went and generated business. I tell the I tell students all the time when you're if you're thinking about grad school in particular as the next step, you know you got you gotta the grad schools are looking for people who are successful, uh, ambitious, smart, all that stuff. But how do you demonstrate success in an in an application just out of just out of school a couple of years out, right? it's it's easy to say, well, I got the highest ranking in my group. My boss gave me the highest ranking. Well, I don't know your boss. I have no perspective. So the kind of jobs that lead to demonstrating success are things like sales, where you can quantify the outcome. I increased the revenue in my territory by X percent, or I beat my target by Y percent. Those kind of things help make that case much better than, you know, my boss gave me a great grade. You know, it's it's funny. You mentioned that's the sales aspect. And I think even if I'm an accountant, right, you mm -hmm. always have to be selling yourself one way or another, yes. right? In what you do. Right? Always. You're selling your ideas. You're, I mean, I think critical thinking breaks down to, almost any business problem in any field is identify the issue, you know, identify the problem, whatever it is, come up with a solution. And then more importantly than anything, you got to sell it in writing and verbally. You got to do that. And that's the part that usually falls off. That, that takes work, right? And, and you put yourself out there, you know, a, uh, it was shocking to me during my career, how poorly college graduates can write. It's appalling. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't doubt it. Um, I'm not talking about writing novels and shit. I'm talking about basic emails. Give me an email. email that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even sentences. It's bullet points. <laughs> right. Well, you, uh, you know, your formula that resonates with me when we were, when I was working on the MSBA, that master's of science and business analytics program, it was, to me, it was just a great idea. No brainer. Right. But like I told you, I want to make sure I know where everyone's vote is before we even introduce yep. it at the faculty meeting. And that took a lot of time, a lot of copies and, and taking people out and, buying them beers or lunch or whatever. And, just, and a lot of it's just, you know, getting their feedback. And I got a lot of good feedback. Sometimes people just want to be heard. 
and talk about no, it. Oh, that's for sure. It definitely is the case. I mean, and, and you know, I can see it in my short time in the Jefferson building. When people get their hackles up, it tends to be because they weren't included. Right, right. But it's, it's not because they care. Right. <laughs> well, that's not, I think that's across academia. And then when you start including them, they just ignore it, right? So they, they don't want to participate anyway. Right. So not right. always, not always, but that, that happens a lot. So um, so you make it over to Northwestern. You make the drive uh, starting east, you know, I guess to the Midwest from Spokane. Yep. Yeah. You have your, your, I think, then girlfriend, now wife with you, right? She's making the move as well. She didn't move. No, she stayed. Oh. She stayed. She was in Spokane for only a short, we met in Spokane. She stayed in Spokane for probably a year all in, um, and then moved back to Seattle where she has family and was working. <clears throat> so I was there. I uh, got a summer job at Chemical Bank, which has merged about 10 times since then. Um, it is now JP Morgan. Uh, I was a summer intern. In, I stayed in Chicago, didn't go to New York. Um, and Chemical at the time was just like, like JP Morgan, like Chase, like Citibank, all the big commercial banks had figured out that their basic business was being commoditized. And therefore they had to change. And the obvious change was to become investment banks. Because at the time, if you wanted, if you wanted a loan, you went to one of the big banks, commercial banks. If you wanted advice or raise equity, you went to Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, one of those, just a few of those, the investment banks. That was the setup in the world. Some of it with legal precedent going back to the 30s. Um they had to be they had to be separate. Yeah, they had to be separate. Yeah. But the lines were starting to blur and starting to crumble. Um, ultimately, Citibank is the one that really drove it. The, the ultimate demise of um, what was the what was the law? I'm trying to remember. Whatever it was, it'll come to me. Um, but it's gone away, right? The the and and it was driven not by the banks; it was driven by the clients. There's laws that still restrict to this day <clears throat> um, banks from tying products, commercial banking products and non-commercial banking products. So if you want to borrow money from a bank, um, I can tell you legally that you have, if you want this loan, you have to have your checking account, for example, in the bank. Okay. Those are two commercial banking products. What I can't do is make a condition of that loan that you hire me as your M&A advisor. Okay, that's called tying. Can't do that. Gotcha. Clients figured out they can do it though. Sure. <laughs> and they're looking for a better deal. Okay. Is, so is, is, is there some synergy just knowing both sides? So I'm thinking of course, through the accounting lens where if you're doing my audit, you've already looked so all, yeah. all the crevices, you, you're better situated to, to help consult on things. Is there some leveraging you can do? I mean, well, of I course, there, there absolutely is. Um, I think most of it, though, is driven by you, you can get a discount pricing. Yeah. Instead of running off each column in the menu. But the um, and that took a long time to change. 
but it got to a point where the clients drove it. It really wasn't the banks. You know, today, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are commercial banks. They have licenses. Hmm. They hate it, but I don't have a choice. That was a result of the financial crisis. The only way the Fed was going to support them was if they became commercial banks and therefore become governed by all the rules that the commercial banks have to deal with that the, the other guys didn't. Interesting. So they have all the same regulatory issues, reporting requirements, oversight that that the big uh, the J.P. Morgans and the Wells Fargo's of the world do. Same people. Okay, so how how'd you get to New York? How'd you get to Manhattan, the heart, the, the capital of the world? Well, once you get to grad school, especially the, the top tier grad schools, they come to you. That's the beauty of it. They come to you. So I was a summer intern and, you know, I interviewed on campus. Um, I went, they had a, their office in Chicago was on the 50th floor of a very large building with nothing between them and the lake. Um, I went in there at a, for a second interview, middle of the week, it's 8 a.m. Sun's coming up over the lake, this spectacular view, window. I said, yeah, I can hang with you guys. <laughs> That's, That's kind of cool. And, and, and did you say it was J.P. Morgan? Where did you start at? This was Chemical Bank. There's still Chemical Bank. Okay, all right. Chemical merged with Manufacturers Hanover, which merged with a few other things, which merged with Chase, which merged with J.P. Morgan. Right, right. All of that was driven by the, the guys at Chemical Bank who hired me were the same people driving that whole procession for the next 20 years. But it was a better brand name. Chase was a better brand name than Chemical. J.P. Morgan's a better brand name than Chase. Right, right. And that's that was, that's what they, that's how they thought about it. They didn't care about their heritage. They cared about what's the best business decision. Right. The brand. And and that was, so you graduate that spring from North, from Kellogg, and then you're going, you're, yeah. you, you, you putting, putting the stuff in the car and then driving out to New York. Um, I actually didn't even have a car in grad school. Went back to Seattle um, and my fiance at that point, I think we were engaged. We packed, I bought a car. We packed it up and drove across the country. Um, Minneapolis was touch and go. There was a couple of very, very long days and we got to Minneapolis and concluded that we needed time out. So we went different directions for about an hour. Sure. That's a lot. I'm still touch and go after, uh, after yeah. 12 years. So yeah. But we made it, made it through there and got to New York. We rented a condo and not in the city never lived in the city never in the city okay no nope, lived in the suburbs um in part because neither one of us ever had been in the city okay. she had a little dog um and it just didn't seem to make sense to me to be in a high-rise apartment building in new york city and got to deal with a dog right and the dog was you know that was part of the package so so we should calculate your your life commuting hours how many hours of your life you spent too many on the on the train uh too many on the train wow but, but you know but after a few years most of the time i was going to the airport anyway so it didn't really matter 
Very cool. Um, work your way up. Always, well, we're always in M&A work, right? Is that yeah, for the most part. I mean, early on, we didn't have an M&A group. We were starting. It was a real startup. It was, we have to get into this investment banking business. We're not sure exactly what that is or how to do it, but we got to do it. So <clears throat> hired a couple Wall Street guys to drive it. And I was in the first class of MBA students hired not to lend money. Okay. Build this new business, providing advice, providing you know access to capital markets. Uh, it was a startup, and it was interesting. So it seems like you've done a lot of build up from the ground, startup, entrepreneurial. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds like that's what it was like at Wells Fargo. I don't know what happened at Deutsche. Well, that was the 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 theme in my career was the day to day stuff is exactly the same. The books, the analysis, the products, they're all basically the same. In fact, until Lehman went out of business, they well, when Lehman went out of business, everybody's books were dark blue. They had green ones. But when they went out of business, all the books are blue. They're just different fonts, different formats, but it's the same stuff. What made a difference was building something. And that's what we were doing at Chemical. That was the pitch they made me that I bought. Um, and it was fun. It's hard, really hard. Um, and every time we'd merge, it was a little bit of a startup again, but now we're building on a bigger platform. We're more competitive. Um, <clears throat> ultimately, when I left, it was JP Morgan. And the, art, the, the fight all along was to climb the hill, get on top of the hill. That was the battle. Very competitive business. And at the time, J.P. Morgan, this was 06, J.P. Morgan was on top of the hill. Now, it's crowded on top of the hill, sure. right? Um, but it changed. It became much less about, okay, we missed that deal. Let's go get the next one. And more about, okay, who, who didn't get the job done? Very, very different environment yeah. on top of the hill. Like who on your team? Or in other teams. I mean, everybody's looking for self-preservation or self-credit. It was, it was, I thought, a very unhealthy way to compete. Okay. Um, so some former colleagues had gone to Deutsche Bank, who was, you know, big and massively powerful in Europe, um, pretty big and powerful in Asia, but had never figured out how to get the U.S. right. They had bought, they bought Alex Brown, they bought Bankers Trust, and they never quite got it. So we're building. Um, so that was part of attracting me. We're going to build this thing. Um, and there were some people I knew. Uh, five years later, Wells Fargo was, it was essentially a do-over of J.P. Morgan and an old, actually old chemical and Chase. We're a big old commercial bank. <clears throat> we have an investment bank that's subscale, um, not global, not even national, frankly. It was a middle market bank from Wachovia. And we're going to move this thing. And, and the people that were driving that business were people I had worked with from way back in chemical bank days. So it's like, we know how to do this. We know where the landmines are. Um, a lot of it's about getting people to change. You know, you've got a, a an old, a older, experienced commercial banker who has a great relationship, 
you know, they don't really understand M&A. They don't understand the equity markets. That's not their job, but they are the ones that in many cases own the relationship with the client. And the key to growing those businesses was benefiting from those relationships, which means you have to get those people to be part of the process. They're nervous. They don't know what goes on behind that door because they were never in the room. But they can, they may not win you the MA business, but they can clearly screw you up if, if you don't engage them. So it was all about, and some of it is some of the things we've talked about around Gonzaga. How do you get people to cooperate and contribute? And part of that is you just make them the hero. Hmm. We have, there's one very specific thing on the earth. We got a nice deal, MA transaction. The relationship commercial banker guy really had nothing to do with it at all. But we made him the freaking hero internally. This never would have happened if Paul hadn't gotten on the bus and really helped, helped us access this thing. And then all of a sudden people are going, hey, that's cool. He got, you know, he got brownie points. He got a pack in the back. He probably got a bigger bonus. Right. I can do that. Interesting. Hey, before I forget here, so you mentioned Layman had green books. Everyone else has had blue books. Now, when I think of books, I think of the accounting ledger. What, what do you mean by that? It's like with the pitch books. The what? A pitch book. Okay, what you give the client? Yeah. Block seat up. Walk through the presentation. Yep, you walk through the presentation. Gotcha, gotcha. So it, it sounds like relationships have been important in your career, right? I mean, absolutely. you got the team together. Uh, I'm guessing it's pretty important. I mean, where is it not important at the end of the day, right? Um, um, I'm always baffled at how, and, and you mentioned some culture at the top of the hill, uh, which I would say is not conducive to good relationships, right? If you have that Correct. kind of toxic chemical, or, or not chemical, that toxic, uh, crossing my words here, that, that toxic culture. Um, I guess, how do these guys stay at the top? How, how is it, how does that, if you're at the top and you're nasty about it, I mean, I, I would think at one, at one point, the chickens are going to come home to roost. I don't know. Well, they do, but to some degree, you got to start with, you got to have the best people. And in banking is a team sport, no question about it. Um, but does the, you know, the, the, the banker that focuses on the chemical industry, for example, really doesn't need to work with the banker that focuses on, you know, telecom. They have independent businesses. They need resources from across the place. And ultimately they compete for those resources and they really compete for money to pay them. Bonus time in investment banks is a knives out, <laughs> ugly, difficult time, especially in tough years. You got boat payments to make, right? It's it is it is crazy how much senior resource time, which none of which is being spent with clients is where it should be. None of which is happening because it's all internally focused. Wow. And it it's, there's never enough money to go around, even in the best years. Um, and I, it's, 
my view of compensation strategy in, in investment bank in particular is figure out who you want to keep, pay them $1 more than you have to, but no more. And you run the risk of people leaving because everybody's just human nature is inflated views of their own performance always. I'm, I'm an exception to that, but yeah. Well, saying. yeah, yeah. Well, we all know. We all know differently. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's tough. It's a really tough environment, and it's competitive. It just is. People, to some degree, that's how people validate themselves. Sure. In those environments, that's how they get graded. Who get paid more? Right. Right. It's a. It's a. A competition and every dollar is a point, right? You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that changed massively in my career was the transparency, especially amongst junior people. When I was starting, we didn't talk about how much you get paid. It was just off. It was not an acceptable topic. Right. Now they publish it. It's on, you know, it's on spreadsheets running around the floor. Right. Crazy. Right. Um. We talked about going out and getting business. So, and you were you were in, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. You you did mining. And did you call it industrials? Is that is that? Yeah, industrials was kind of a catch-all for stuff that doesn't fit somewhere else. Yeah. Like you know, every firm's got a healthcare team. Every firm's got a telecom team. Um, industrials is a bit of a catch-all, and it varies from firm to firm. Um, it's you know basic manufacturing stuff, the auto guys, steel, um, chemicals. Sometimes is in natural resources. Sometimes in industrials. Mining is flips back and forth. In fact, in the same firm, it could flip from year to year, simply based on who's which manager needed a bigger pie. I mean, there's no rationale to it because yeah. they really tend to. Bankers tend to focus over time into a, you know, one or a multiple range of, of silos because you're, you got to know the industry. I covered a whole bunch of them in industrials and I'd like that better. Um, but I wasn't the day-to-day -day industry expert. I was more of the product, the M&A product coming into play. Um, but unless you have some experience in the industry, you're really not going to be that credible in the first place. So, so to get business, I mean, get, just kind of give me the bullet points. Like, what what's the team doing? I mean, if I'm at, you know, uh, uh, you name the company, I, I might not know I need your services. Or, or is it, hey, we're thinking about M and A activity. Come, come pitch us, and you go in and. Your range of things. So the easy one is when a company says, we're going to get out of this business, you know, come tell us what we should do with it. Those, those tend to be easy. You don't have to be, you got to be smart and creative and, and uh, informed. But the, the, the model that I would use fairly successfully, I think, over time, um, especially if you're dealing with public companies, Public companies have a scoreboard every day on the on the, on the screen. There's a stock price. Um, I've never met a CEO who thought his price was overvalued. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
So when we're starting with somebody relatively new, um, I never thought it made sense to just go flying in there with, here, you should buy this. Well, maybe they talked about it last week and we just don't know it because we don't know them that well. I would always try to go in with a, here's where you're trading and why. Here's why we think your stock is trading where it is. And therefore to get it up, here are the things you should be thinking about. Um, you know, do you have too much leverage? Do you, are you under your growth prospects lower than your competitors? Do you have too much geopolitical risk if half your business is in China kind of stuff? I mean, and what it really starts with, what are investors paying for? You look at the peer set, who trades at the highest multiples and why? And compare that to your client, perhaps, or your hopeful client. Say, here's where the, here's why they're trading where they are relative to you. So can you think about an M&A strategy or just a basic financial strategy, operating strategy, any of your strategies um, against those filters? If these are what investors pay for, and ultimately the investors for public companies decide who wins. What do you do about it? You can't make up the rules. They're, they're making the rules. You gotta, you can believe all day long that such and such is the right course, but if your investors don't believe you, you lose. Right. And therefore as CEO, you get fired. So that you don't make the rules, they do. And how do you play the game? That is the question. So if we would agree with a client that these five characteristics receive premium valuations in the market, think of any M&A idea you think about should be viewed through the filter of those rules. And sometimes that can turn into sell something too. Or are you guys getting compensated as like a percentage of the sale? Is it hourly? How's that? Um, in general, we don't get paid unless a deal happens. And then it is, depending on the, the type of transaction, it could be a percentage. If you're selling, helping somebody sell the company, for example, and I get paid as a percentage of the price, our incentives are aligned, right? The higher price they get, the more I get paid. Right, right. If you're helping somebody buy something, it's it doesn't work that way. Because the more they pay, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just a misaligned. So generally, buy side stuff becomes a fixed fee. Okay. Percentages are part of the discussion. Um, but there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into it. If If the banker created the idea and brought it in or or had some unique perspective that nobody else did, that's added value. Right. And it's not just your standard rate sheet. Um, but there's other situations where, you know, a company's gonna be auctioned off and client calls and said, I'm, I'm looking at this thing, can you help me? I mean, we didn't do much at that point. So we have a hard time justifying a premium price if, um, if all we're doing is helping them with valuation and helping them with market intelligence, it's it, 
it always comes down to discussions about, well, how much time did you spend? Da, 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 da. And I was, uh, we did a transaction a number of years ago, represented a company called Lyondell Chemical. Um, they were, I think the final, the final price is about $20 billion was the bill. Um, and we had been working with them for years. None of them had built a relationship. I was actually in Spokane, I was in Coeur d'Alene for a Gonzaga board meeting and the CFO tracks me down and said, we've got a handshake deal to sell the company. Can you represent us? Um, great call to get. Um, but that was a Wednesday late afternoon Pacific time. And by Monday, this deal was announced. So we had four days. Um, we had a $35 million fee. It's a big deal. That's a, that's a big number for any bankers. That's a big number. Um, <clears throat> there was loss. There's in public companies until about two years ago, 98% of the transactions had share, shareholder litigation because there's a group of lawyers out there who run around and find a client and then sue saying that something wasn't sufficient, you should have got a better price, basically. And nine out of 10 times, the company would say, this isn't worth the trouble, so they settle with the lawyers. Shareholders never get anything, the lawyers do. It was their business model. Sure, sure, sure. They were ambulance chasers, it was outrageous. Yeah. And finally, and just in the last couple of years, the Delaware courts, where most of this takes place, most companies are headquartered or um, <clears throat> based in Delaware from a corporate standpoint. They, the Delaware court said, no, if, if there's a lawsuit and you um, plaintiff lose, you pay everybody's legal costs. Yeah, as it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And that stopped cold. Yeah. Litigation stopped it cold. You better be dang sure. Right. Not a slam dunk, right? So in the Lionel one, Lionel got sued like everybody expected. They said, screw you guys. We're going to we're going to court. So I had to go through depositions and all this stuff. And I, the reality of the timing of it was that you couldn't have done that deal two weeks later. Wouldn't have happened. The debt markets fell out of bed. I mean, it was just for all kinds of reasons, you couldn't have done it. It was a great deal. So I testified to all that. Uh, a year and a half later, Lindo went bankrupt because they had too much debt. <laughs> a very, very cyclical business. This was, oh, this is in, you know, the deal was done in summer of 07. So by the end of 08, the world's fallen apart. Um, they fell apart. Um, they went bankrupt. The lenders in that case now sued. They sued management. They sued the board. They sued us. They wanted our feedback. So do we misrepresent? Now, now your role here was this really for witness. You were the advisor to. We were the advisor to the company to sell. Um, and I had so I had to be deposed in a room that there were fourteen lawyers in this room. <laughs> And me, I had three of my own <laughs> representing the bank. Um, it was just, that's, that's one of the worst parts of our society is there's just too many freaking lawyers. <laughs> so 
So the guy across right. the table is leading it, and management all has lawyers. The board has lawyers. I mean, it's a lot of people. And this guy was just going and poking, and and I've been practicing for four days. Um, and he's going after our fee by saying, well, wait a minute. So you got the call when? And he breaks it down. He's pretending to make notes. And I know it's all written out in front of him the whole time. <laughs> so you work for like four days on this? And you made $35 million? Is that, is that right? I said, yes. Now, that doesn't count, of course, the years that we've known the company and the expertise we've built in the industry and yada, 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 all this stuff, right? And he said, well, well, if I'm calculating this right, you make, is it true? You make like $200,000 an hour? Is that right? And my response was, you mean you don't? <laughs> Every lawyer in that room except that guy were laughing. No, good, good. <laughs> wow. So um, actually, I, Deutsche Bank actually settled that. I left right after that. I was leaving and went to Wells Fargo. Um, so it wasn't around for the end of it. But they settled. They gave them some of the feedback. Sure. Not enough to matter, but the lenders lost billions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I met you, I don't know, maybe 17, 18, 2018, 19, in New York on our New York trek. And for some time before that, and you were involved with probably establishing that, I imagine, on some level as a, as a board member out there, yeah. um, you'd taken an interest in kind of mentoring, mentoring some Zags. Yep. Um, students coming up and, and had done it for a long time. And, and you, you fast forward and, and you were you were great kind of coaching and, and, and doing what you could from 3,000 miles away. Fast forward to today, you gave up your Ranger season tickets. You know, you retired. <laughs> that one hurt. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you move, move back, back west. We mentioned alpacas, and now you're doing lavender. You got all, it's, it's a far cry from your, your uh I, I, didn't, I don't know what kind of suits you wore. I was going to say Brooks Brothers, but that's probably for what you had to do. Probably not good enough. So uh, Armani suits. <laughs> um, you're, 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 you're the executive in residence. Uh, and, and we have a lot of great students and a, a lot of ambitious students. And you and I have had some discussions uh, around opportunities. Um, but maybe and just because we're running out of time here, Real, real, the the interest or the your your philosophy on um, the approach that these students should be taking. You know, obviously, a student that comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm interested in doing," you know, kind of what you did, um, and 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 maybe some of the things that we need to do around Jepson. Okay, um, I'll start with the second one. What do we need to do around Jepson, uh, which really gets to the genesis of executive and residence, whatever we want to call it. Um, if you go back, we've got four kids. The oldest one is Colin is, lives in Spokane. He's 33. When I was going to college tours with him, uh, parents' questions, not the kids' questions, parents' questions were all about dorms and majors and safety, things like that. 
Um, our youngest, Molly, was also a Zag. Um, in the eight years between them, the parents' questions had changed dramatically, my observation. Safety still mattered. After that, the only thing parents were talking about was, where's the return on my investment? Where's the job? I'm paying 50, 60, $70,000 a year. Where's the job? And that was a pretty dramatic change, I thought. Um, higher ed still hasn't caught up with that. Goes back to our conversation a little bit about the banking industry and how the, the banks didn't really want to change, but they didn't have a choice because the market changed. That's the market. The market is parents and students are focused on if I'm borrowing so much money or spending so much money, where's the next step? And what are you doing to help me prepare for that university of whatever? They make the rules and we have to react to that. Um, and my observation was, and still is, that higher ed still lives in an ivory tower. And there is a massive gap between the real world and the academic world. What we need to do better is to bridge that. Right. That's what my mission, if you want to call it that, whatever it is, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bridge it. We're not trying to eliminate anything. We're trying to bridge that gap because it matters. It matters for the outcomes. You know, I've talked to employers who say the finance grads aren't prepared to hit the ground running. Well, that's true. So what can we do to improve that? The uh, just a recognition of what's, what it takes to get a job needs some real world. So that led to discussions between Ken and I over the years. It just took four or five years of discussions to say, we can do something about this. We just need to be proactive. Um, when we go to the jail weekend with my little name tag on and there's a parent turn, they what's an executive residence? And I explain it and they go, oh, thank God, you guys are doing that. That's important. Now we do it. You do it, Andrew. Every, a lot of people do. We have to be more intentional about it. And I also think it's a recruiting advantage for new students to be visible about it. Yeah, it's go. branding. We're investing in the next step. Everybody's got a career center, right? right? That isn't differentiating. You know, Ray and his team are really good and they're a massive improvement from what we used to have. But the reality is that the only people they've ever hired work in a career center. Right, right. It's just different. And I think that is something that higher ed broadly, I talked to my brother about this, Higher ed broadly has to acknowledge because they don't set the rules. The customer and the market sets the rules. Right, right. Yeah, we got to start being a little more nimble. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> I said that came up at a board meeting one day, and I said, "Well, nobody's called me nimble for thirty years and thirty pounds." So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, 
And we can do it. We just have to acknowledge that it's a necessity. You know, the, 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 one of the more apt sayings I've heard is that, you know, in higher ed and, and, and probably in, in most big organizations that have been around and doing the same thing for a lot of years is it's not, it's not like turning a, a speedboat. It's, it's turning a tanker, right? So oh, yeah. Battleship. It's lot, yeah. It's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of convincing and, you know, that I think the most dangerous thing I hear around campus and I'm sure it's heard on other campuses is well that's not how we do things right i mean it's we need to get to a point where uh we gotta start thinking of new ways to do things yeah absolutely uh, we have to be you know the higher ed is intensely competitive for new students right you, the demographic you could see it coming for 18 years it's not <laughs> there's just no news flash here the population is going down yeah. So what do you do about it? You've got to be different. That was part of the competitive nature of in banking. I at which firm was it? When I went to Wells, we had an annual senior management meeting. And one thing they did the first year I was there, they trotted out the new guys in a panel. What kind of things did people do to compete differently at other firms? Right? Smart idea. Um one of the things that I highlighted was you have to be different. If you're in fifth place amongst the competitive set and you're saying all the same stuff as everybody else, you're not going to move up. Right. Just hey. simple. Right? Yeah. yeah. So you got to have be different. Now, maybe that's Take a different way of thinking about. It. I mean, that that model I explained, where you say, "How? Why do you trade where you do, and why did your peer group trade where they do?" That was different. Nobody had done that before. At least the clients that I that told me about it. Um, and in this panel, I said, "You know, maybe sometimes you got to be controversial. You know, you don't want to be outrageous, but you need to push the edge a little bit, and maybe tell them something they don't want to hear." I actually think that the clients we want are not the ones that just want to be told what they want to hear. Um, but uh, somebody in the, in the audience said, yeah, but what if you piss them off? I said, well, reality is you're not doing business with them anyway, so who cares? <laughs> reality is no matter what you do, you're going to piss somebody off. Right? Yeah, so... <laughs> demonstrate that you're thinking differently. I actually think the clients we want will appreciate that. And I, the fact that I survived as long as I did in that business says that I think more, more often than not, I was right. But higher and Gonzaga is no different. We need to differentiate. And I don't think it's radical change. I think some of it is just thinking about marketing differently. Right. We get, we certainly have good foundations to build off of, but but there's it's it's a different it's a different clientele, right? The yeah. than it was five, 10, 20 years ago. That is exactly right. That's the whole point. And and uh we'll have to we'll have to keep working on that. But I I gotta run. I appreciate your time. Always always good to see you and, and uh we'll be in touch. All right. All right, cheers, buddy.